It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked." Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is, the, it is a law of the Medes and the Persian that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Then at day of break, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm." Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who, saved, he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of the Lord.
Will you join me as we pray? Jesus, we come now, we humble our hearts before you and your word, asking that you would speak to us. We know you are here through your spirit, and you have been already ministering to our hearts through the songs and the prayers, and we ask now that you would speak to us through your word. Give us not only open minds, but open hearts to believe, to put into practice what we learn, so that we as your followers, as disciples of Christ, will not only claim your name, but that our lives will reflect your beauty. In Christ's name, amen. We are continuing our series on faithful ambassadors by looking at the life of Daniel. And tonight, in Daniel chapter 6, we come to the tail end of this age-old saint. In the beginning of Daniel, we found him to be a young teenager, exiled, newly displaced in a foreign land. But here in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is in his early 80s. He has seen kings come and go. He's seen kingdoms come and go. And he has seen the first wave of Israelites returning home under a new leadership. And yet in the midst of all the changes that were going on at the time, one thing remained constant. That is God's faithfulness to his people. You see, the book of Daniel is not primarily about Daniel's faith and faithfulness that we ought to learn from. We certainly could do that. But the primary meaning this book is to highlight God's goodness and faithfulness to his people. And what Darius said at the end of chapter 6 is true, that Daniel's God is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never end, never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He's deliverer, he delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. And we have come to know him as such. But we also await that one day when he will return to complete the work that he has begun. And as we find ourselves in the tension of these two realities, the scripture calls us to be faithful ambassadors, living out the word of God, so that when the world looks at our hearts, the motives behind the things that we do, and the actual things that we do, they would see what is good, true, and beautiful about our God. And even though the primary message of the book is not about Daniel's faith and faithfulness, there are lessons that we can still glean from. And there are two things we want to talk about tonight. So how do we engage this culture? How can we be faithful ambassadors? First, we engage. We engage the world around us. Initially, when the Israelites were first displaced, they formed an enclave on the outskirts of the Babylonian Empire in order to maintain their cultural and theological distinctives. See, they saw assimilation as sin, the very thing that got them in trouble in the first place. So they wanted to make sure that they wouldn't fall back into that same sin. Yet God, through prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29 verse 4, said this. He said to the Israelites in exile, build homes and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. 
marry and have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is the salt principle that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5. He said that we are the salt of the earth. And salt needs to get out and get in in order to be effective. Salt is basically useless in a salt shaker. Now, many of you, you like soup. I like soup. But I like my soup a little saltier than normal people. And so I would take salt and add plenty of it in there in order to make sure that it's to my liking. But if I take the salt shaker and put it right next to the bowl of soup, it does absolutely no good. Proximity matters. And we can't simply say that, look, the salt is close enough, isn't it? It's got to be in there. And it's got to die to itself in order to affect its surrounding in order to be useful. And that's what Jesus called us to. He calls us not to stand on the sidelines and simply watch what he is doing. And every once in a while, applaud the good work. But he calls us to go in, to enter the city, the families, and to be an agent of change and transformation. And Daniel is a good example of this. The text says that he did not shy away from going up the ranks in Babylon and now in Persia. Rather, he worked with integrity and excellence. The phrase, an excellent spirit in verse 3, is important because it points to not only Daniel's work ethic, but it actually highlights another dimension to Daniel altogether. That somehow he saw his work not just as work, but something spiritual. Now, I don't know if Daniel read Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor. Maybe, maybe not. But Daniel understood the sacredness of work. That is not simply to go in, punch in, punch out. But it's really a calling to advance human flourishing. Christianity dignifies work in ways no other religion does. We believe work matters because it reflects who God is. God worked for six days, and on the seventh, he rested. Work is good. No, it doesn't feel like it come Monday morning. Some of you are already thinking about work tomorrow. Sorry, <laughs> let's come back. <laughs> work is good. It is, it is a blessing to be able to work, to reflect God in the everyday things that we do. And as we work faithfully, we're extending the borders of Eden right here in our city. And Christians today are called to engage our culture without compromising our faith, much like the Israelites were called during the days of Daniel. Now, some Christians are uncomfortable with this, and they want to remain in their religious enclaves. And as a result, they build walls to keep others outside rather than building bridges. And I understand that they have their reasons for doing what they do. And one of those reasons is a fear of compromising their faith. And this temptation is real. 
we read about Demas in the New Testament. His name is mentioned twice in the New Testament as one of Paul's missionary companions. Yet, towards the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy 4, Paul says, Demas has deserted him because he loved the world. And there's a personal ring to Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, where he instructs Timothy to watch your life and your doctrine closely. To watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, he says, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You see, if we don't keep a close watch over our hearts, sin could easily fester and deaden our spirits. That's why the author of Hebrews challenges us that today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The effect of sin is real. And if at any point we think we're above that, I think scripture says, be careful lest you fall. We ought to keep a close watch over our hearts. The question before us is this. How do we then engage our culture timely and tactfully without compromising our faith? I think the secret is in prayer. Secret is in prayer. And we see this in Daniel's life. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. We read it it earlier, but we're going to read it again. It says, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went and he prayed. I don't know what he prayed for, but I know why he prayed. Prayer reorders our loves. It was Augustine who said, sin disorders our love. The default setting of our heart is such that we constantly turn a good thing into a God thing. We take something that is good, something that is true and beautiful, and we twist that and we make that into a God thing and we bow before it. And prayer is what pushes against that very tendency in our hearts. John Bunyan, the author of the book Pilgrim's Progress, once said, prayer will make a man cease from sin, or sin will make a man cease from prayer. In other words, prayer and sin cannot coexist, at least peacefully. There is a struggle in our hearts And that's what prayer does. Have you been angry towards someone? I know I have. This is like my constant sin. Every time I'm on the road driving, I get angry. I see an out-of-state license plate, and I get angry. I see a person making an illegal U-turn, I get angry. I see someone who pays no attention to a stop sign, and I get angry. I get angry all the time. And I actually get angry at home, too. Sometimes. This one time, I try to remember why I got angry at my wife, but I got really angry at my wife for something. Now, those of you who know my wife, you're like, how could you ever get angry at her? Right? But you can. It's possible. We're all sinners. (laughs) We need the grace of God. All of us, we need the grace of God, especially me. Now, I got really angry at her, and I, I knew I should go and apologize, but I didn't want to. I wanted to play this thing out, and maybe even have her come apologize and say, honey, you were right. Because as husbands, we don't get to hear that a whole lot. Now, do we? 
We relish those words. So I thought, no, I'm going to see how this thing goes. But there was a small voice in my heart that said, come on, what are you doing? You got, come on. And I said, okay, I'm going to pray about it. So I did. I began to pray. Started out my prayer really spiritual. Said, God, my wife needs your grace. She, she does not know how to love the way you loved. And like 30 seconds later, I'm like, who am I kidding? What am I doing? So I'm like, okay, God, to be honest with you, I don't want to forgive my wife right now. And for the next minute or so, I, I didn't have anything to say. I just sat there. And all of a sudden, God started reminding me of the gospel. He didn't have to shame me. Like, what are you doing? For every one wrong she does, you do a thousand things. No, he didn't have to shame me. He didn't have to guilt me. He certainly didn't demand that I forgive her. But as I allow the Spirit to minister to my heart and allow the gospel to go deeper into my own soul, I realize how trite and petty my anger was. Just minutes ago, I wanted to play this thing out to see if I can get her to say, honey, you're right, I'm sorry. Now I realize how stupid that really is. I said, God, I need to be reminded of the gospel all the time. And I waited 10 minutes to say I'm sorry to my wife. <laughs> and I think that's what God does when we pray we can't make intimacy happen, as one author said. But when we pray, we make room for intimacy to happen. We allow the Spirit to minister to our hearts. And when, we, when He ministers to our hearts, He reorients and recenters our hearts, our loves. Not by shaming us, not by guilting us, not by demanding it out of us, but simply by reminding us of the deep and rich grace that we had in Christ. This is a starting point to our cultural engagement. We don't go in to cultural engagement thinking, I have something to offer. I am so much better than you, further ahead. No, we come from a place of humility, of grace, of kindness, and of love. And we wrap that towel around our waist and we begin to serve the people that God has placed in our lives. See, it's about engaging the people that God has placed in our lives with love. That's what this is all about. Because if we're motivated by fear or any other thing, we're going we're gonna to run to our corners, put our fists up, no, it's by understanding what Christ has done that we move into the world to reflect that very grace that was shown to us. Let me encourage all of us here tonight with two things before we move to our second point. I want to encourage you to engage people different from you, beginning right here in this sanctuary. It's one thing to engage people out there people who are so different 
and we need to do that. But we got to start that right here. God has blessed us with this community, yet so many people tell me, I don't feel like I belong. It seems like everyone else belongs to a group, an inner circle, if you will. But I don't know. I'm trying, but I don't know if I fit. And we need to be in the hands and feet of Christ to those people first, regardless of race, class, political views, or even theological dispositions. We need to engage people who are different from us and ask difficult questions that may make things seem really awkward, but be committed to love that person because that's what Christ has done for you. And we believe this is important as a church, don't we? Because that's what the gospel is all about, that Christ came down from heaven to engage us and our mess. He did not judge us or condemn us, but he loved us to the point of dying for us on the cross. And if that's what Christ has done for us, then we can at least say, hi, what's your name? Let's get to know each other. You want to grab coffee? I've seen you around, but I don't really know you. That's a good place to start. And we are called to the work of reconciliation, to bridge, to bring people together. Because it's sin that divides us. Look at Genesis 3. That perfect unity and intimacy between God, Adam, and Eve completely destroyed the moment sin entered. God, it's the women you gave me. No, it's a serpent. And they divide. But it's a Christian message that says, no, we come together to serve and love each other well. And if you are visiting for the first time to check out our church or even to learn more about Christian faith, I want you to know that we as a church, we are committed to this. We are committed to loving one another regardless of the differences. We don't want to build walls that separate, but we want to build bridges that would engage people in a healthy way. Because at the end of the day, it's not about consensus. It's not to get everyone else to believe what I believe, but it's to have helpful conversations about things that we may disagree on, and that's okay. But we want to do so with love and respect. Secondly, we not only engage, but we also expect. We got to expect that there will be some resistance, some pushback. When King Darius planned to set Daniel over the whole kingdom, the other two administrators, the satraps, uh, launched basically a hate campaign against Daniel. And basically, they dig for dirt. They comb through his Facebook account, Twitter account. They do a quick Google search under Daniel. They come up empty-handed. So what do they do? The only thing they know that would disqualify Daniel from serving in Darius's court, his faith his religion. So they devise a plan forbidding prayer to anyone except the king for 30 days. And the obvious appeal to Darius is because, I mean, it's obvious, right? Who wouldn't want to be treated like God? To have people pray to you, to treat you as one of the deities. 
But why 30 days? Is there something significant about this number? I don't know. My guess is that they knew Daniel. They knew that Daniel wouldn't go 30 days, maybe not even one, without praying. How many of us at this point, I wonder, would have fasted from praying? I wonder how many of us at this point would have resorted to praying in private. Just 30 days. God knows my heart. Jesus taught us to pray in secret. But sometimes praying in secret is not obedience. As believers, I think the challenge before us, as we face resistance and challenge, is to commit to long obedience in the same direction, as Nietzsche once said. In other words, we gotta, we got to build character, or what David Brooks calls eulogy virtues. David Brooks, in his book, Road to Character, talks about these two things. He talks about resume virtues that have to do with abilities and skills, and eulogy virtues that have to do with character. And his critique simply is this, that we as a society have in an unhealthy way overemphasized resume virtues at the cost of eulogy virtues. This is what he says. We know how to promote and advertise ourselves and to master the skills required for success. It's true, certainly of us in Washington, right? As a result, we turn into a shrewd animal, a crafty, self-preserving creature who is adept at playing the game. But here's the fallout, and I think these words are prophetic. He says, if that's all you have, you don't have a clear idea of the sources of meaning in life. So you don't know where you should devote your skills, which career path will be highest and best. Years pass and the deepest parts of yourself go unexplored and unstructured. You are busy, but you have a vague anxiety that your life has not achieved its ultimate meaning and significance. And he challenges his audience to live a life not with vague moral aspirations, but with a clear goal of who we want to be at the end of life. And we see an example in Daniel. Again, verse 10. I mean, Daniel is the man. I love this guy. He hears the edict. There's no protest, no picketing. Business as usual. He goes into his room, opens that window. I bet he opened it a little wider than he normally did. And he prayed the same prayer, probably louder than he did. And the text tells us he gave thanks. It wasn't, Lord, the world is coming to an end. No, he gave thanks. Why would he do such a thing? I think the answer is in his name. The name Daniel means God is my judge. He has lived long enough and seen enough to know that kings come and go. Kingdoms come and go. 
that there is a higher law and a greater king that he must answer to. And he lived his life every day for his approval only. Why didn't he protest? Why didn't he run to Darius, that guy he's very tight with apparently, and say, hey, what happened? You didn't consult me about this. What were you? No, there's none of that. Why? Because he understands that he's in Babylon, not Jerusalem. And he understood that that meant that there would be policies that reflect different set of values. And often as Christians, we need to remember that we live in a democratic country, not a theocratic one. We have for a long time enjoyed the Christian majority, whatever that may mean. And even though the tides are turning, we need not fret or panic because of what's going on. Because the same God is still on the throne. He reigns today as he did last week, thousand years ago, 2,000 years ago, when Christ was crucified on the cross. And he is committed to accomplishing his work. And so when we experience resistance and pushback, we shouldn't be surprised at all. After all, isn't that what Jesus said? He said in John 15, 20, Look, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And Paul piggybacks on this and later on, perhaps reflecting on this very verse, it says, look, if anyone aspires to be godly, he or she will suffer much. Again, the question before us is how do we engage our culture timely and tactfully without compromising our faith despite resistance, resistance that may continue to grow? I think the answer, again, is prayer. And we see that in Daniel's life. Prayer deepened his faith in God. Whether in Babylon or Persia, under Nebuchadnezzar or Darius, his faith grounded Daniel to live his life with integrity and excellence before the true king. Every day he knew he needed to pray because prayer is what kept him grounded in that very truth. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said, if I should neglect prayer but a single day, I should lose a great deal of the fire of faith. Prayer is a fuel that keeps our faith burning brightly. And it will do us well to cultivate a spirit of prayer, to set aside time, to find people who share that value, to say, brother, sister, let's pray together. Keep me accountable. Send me your prayer request. Check up on me, but let's pray. Let's grow in this area together. Faith in God is the only thing that will bring true peace, true comfort, true hope in the midst of the world we find ourselves in. And that very faith teaches us to say, not my will, but yours be done. Not my time, but your timing. Not my way, but your way. It surrenders that to the Lord. So we don't have to save ourselves 
So we don't have to save the city, but we look to the one who can. And we engage yet again with great hope that he's going to use us to accomplish that very work. So Christians, don't be discouraged. Don't despair because of the resistance or the pushback that you have experienced. But keep on keeping on and make sure prayer is on the top of that list. You know how the story goes. Daniel is thrown in the lion's den. And the Jesus figure, angel, comes to his rescue. Again, the point of the story is not be like Daniel. Be faithful like Daniel. Be courageous like Daniel. No, that's not the point at all. Rather, this story is pointing to another servant of God, one more innocent and more righteous than Daniel himself, who will come and he too will be thrown into the lion's den of God's judgment. He too will have the stone rolled over him with the signet ring that sealed the deal. And three days later, he will come out of that den victorious. And the story of Daniel reminds us that this servant who is to come is going to do all that work and is going to defeat. He's going to defeat the enemy that seeks to devour God's people. And he's going to silence the voice, the voice of the accuser that seeks to slander us. So at the end of the day, when all is done and we stand before God and that great throne on that great day, we don't have to fear anything. And that very hope that we have in the finished work of Christ is the very hope that we have today as we think about being faithful ambassadors right here in this city to keep on engaging regardless of the resistance we may face. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for the finished work that you came you reached out to us at a great cost to yourself. But you rose again victoriously. And it's that very hope that pushes us to engage the people that you have placed in our lives and to love them well, regardless of the outcome and regardless of the resistance we may face. And I pray, God, that you would give us hope even now, for those of us who have been weary and discouraged, remind us of that hope once again. In Christ's name, amen.